All right, if you've uh, got your Bible, you can go ahead to turn, go ahead and turn to um, first to Leviticus chapter 23. That's where we're going to start this evening. That's going to be our scripture reading for this evening. But then also you will kind of jump around to Deuteronomy 26 and then eventually into first Corinthians later on in, in the message. So, so we'll kind of jump around a little bit as we've been doing, I think so. Um, So let me read our scripture reading. Leviticus chapter 23, verses 9 through 14. And the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, When you come into the land and I give you that I get that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest, and he shall wave the sheaf before the Lord, so that you may be accepted. On the day after the Sabbath, the priest shall wave it, and on the And on the day when you wave the sheaf, you shall offer a male lamb, a year old, without blemish, as a burnt offering to the Lord. And the grain offering with it shall be two-tenths of an ephah of fine flour mixed with oil, a food offering to the Lord with a pleasing aroma, and the drink offering with it shall be of wine, a fourth of a hen. And you shall eat neither bread nor grain parched or fresh until this same day. Until you have brought the offering of your God, it is a statute forever throughout your generations in all your dwellings. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, we thank you for this day again. God, we thank you for your word. Uh, we thank you for a chance to open it, um, to see the way that you have worked through uh, the history of your people. God, the, the ways that you have foretold and foreshadowed uh, the coming of your son, Jesus Christ, into the world in hundreds and thousands of years before um, his advent. God, we thank you uh, that we can see the continuity between uh, your character uh, as we see it in the Old Testament and as it is fulfilled and played out in the New Testament. God, we thank you for the way it teaches us um, who you are and the plans that you have for your people. It teaches um, our own hearts as we we go day in and day out in this world and, and the things and attitudes and postures that we should have. God, we thank you for the way um, that you use your word to shape your people. Uh, we ask that you would do that now. Um, as we study, uh, that we would uh, see you, uh, understand it clearly, um, that we would, God, apply these things to our lives and, and live by the spirit and the image of Jesus Christ um, to a greater and truer extent because of it. That we would rest in the salvation that you have provided and the promises that you give us. Uh, those that we see in this in this passage, um, God, we continue to pray uh, that you would spark uh, revival uh, in our community, that you would spark a revival in our own hearts, in our own families, in our own congregation, in the congregations of Blunt County, um, as they preach the gospel and are faithful to to love and to serve and to reach out to those around them. God, that your spirit would move to awaken hearts. And uh, that people would recognize their own sin, recognize um, the hopelessness of their lives uh, without you, uh, 
that they would turn from sin and turn to Jesus Christ for salvation. God, we pray that you would use uh, us and our church and your word um, to these ends. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so we we come to um, what we notice about these spring festivals. Okay, so we are talking about our third festival. Remember, we began with a passage about the Sabbath, talked about how the Sabbath sort of frames all of the festivals in a sense. And then we've talked about these three festivals so far, the Passover, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, and now we come to the Feast of First Fruits. The interesting thing about these is these festivals would happen on three concurrent days, okay? They would happen back to back to back. And so I was, I was reading one of the, one of the main guys that I'm kind of using as a, as a source for some of, uh, as my study. He was talking about, um, the illustration of, of a kid on Christmas day. And if you've ever had, um, or maybe you were one of these kids, right? You got your presents under the tree and you were just like tearing through these packages. It's almost like you can't even, pause and get a grip of the day before it's time and of the present that's in front of you before it's time to rip into another one. And he said, there's almost an illustration there for the way these festivals come on the heels of each other, right? Like they are, um, there are these ideas that are connected to each other. And so God gives them in quick succession, I think for a reason. Um, on one side, it would make us think maybe up front to say, well, it seems like God should spread them out a little bit, right? Because that way it gives us more time to think and reflect on each individual uh, festival and what they mean. But I think part of the reason why they are so intertwined is because they have to be. The ideas that are being put forward are connected. And, and to isolate one idea from another idea is is a, can be a negative thing if, if we don't realize how all these things play together. But these three, these three festivals, three spring festivals all come in quick succession to each other. And I don't think we really have the closest thing that we kind of have to that in our culture, in our sort of religious tradition or, or celebratory or whatever, I think would be the holiday season in terms of Christmas Eve, Christmas Day, and then a week later, New Year's Eve and, uh, and New Year's Day, right? Each one of those four days, I think has specific ways of celebrating and customs and traditions, right? And so you get sort of these four unique major holidays that all happen within, you know, whatever it ends up being, nine days of each other, right? And so that's maybe the closest thing that we have to something like this. But we're going to kind of jump in. I'm going to start off in the intro just kind of making some some major points, that different insights into different things that are, are, are a little bit not connected to each other in some ways. But but I hope they'll all, all the pieces will start coming together as we, as we work through the passage. So again, look there at the beginning. Starting in verse nine, it says, and the Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, when you come into the land that I give you and reap its harvest, you shall bring the sheaf of the first fruits of your harvest to the priest. All right. So first insight or first thing to notice about the feast of first fruits is this. It draws attention to the particular fact that this feast was not celebrated in the time that they were in the wilderness. All right. Passover, as far as we know, should have been practiced, even if it wasn't, we were not positive, during the 40 years in the wilderness. But he specifically says, God specifically says, this is a festival that you are to start practicing when you come into the land that I am going to give you. And the reason for that is it had no context, and we'll see that. When the Israelites were a nomadic people wandering around the desert before they had entered into the promised land. 
All right. When they were surviving on the manna and the quail and the and the water that God was supernaturally um, bringing to them, um, the symbolism of the Feast of First Fruits was missing. And that's significant um, because it makes us recognize the fact that you can't be a, a rootless wanderer, in a, in a sense, and celebrate the Feast of First Fruits. First fruits is specifically attached to something. It's attached to a land. It's attached to a promise. It's attached to um, the, the provision of God that comes in, in the bounty of, of agriculture and stuff. And so it, it makes sense why this would not be a feast that they would practice until they got to the promised land. And as we mentioned last week, that's exactly what we see in the scriptures. So we see when Joshua gets to the promised land, and we talked about the fact that once that old disobedient generation had passed away and Joshua and uh, Caleb and the, the, the generation that was ready to enter the promised land and receive God's blessing, as they enter in, what happens on that day? The manna ceases. They wake up that morning and there's no manna on the ground. And at that time, they are supposed to eat of the first fruits of the land and celebrate to God for his uh, blessing and his provision. And so that event, although it's not exactly the same as the the yearly celebration of the first fruits, is almost like a inaugural first fruits celebration as they come into the promised land. All right. So we pause again. Um, to point out something that when they celebrated this festival, it's not a festival because we could get this idea. We look at it, we say, oh, well, God stops making the manna and he starts giving them these, the, the blessings of the, of the, of the crops in the promised land. This is a, a situation where we are looking from the miraculous blessing of God to the, what you might call the natural blessings of God or something, the, the common, uh, blessings of God. But I would argue that's not exactly right. Um, God is still supernaturally blessing us through the normal functions of agriculture and and the growth of crops and things like that. We shouldn't look on that and be like, oh, well, that's just a natural process that God is uh, uninvolved in and would happen regardless of the fact. No, we're supposed to see in this that as much as the manna supernaturally appearing on the ground was a blessing of God, it is no less true that the, the crops growing every single year, that the grains that, that come up and, and the way fruit is performed and the rains and all those different things, all those are just as equally a blessing of God that we should be thankful for, that we should, that we should give him honor for. And so what you would say is maybe that it's not a shift from the miraculous to the natural, but it's a shift from the extraordinary to the ordinary. Right. It'll be the normal way things work from now on, because, man, it's an incredible thing. Have you ever think about that? But like food grows on trees. Right. That's like crazy. OK, that is a crazy thing to think. You can take a grain of something and put it in the ground and it makes a hundred thousand times more of those little things. Just it happens. OK, that is miraculous. That is an incredible thing that we just sort of take for granted in our in our sort of scientific age where we say, no, we completely understand it because there's these cells and they multiply and they do this and the what, yada, yada, yada. And we explain it to the point where we think we have taken away the mystery of it. And the answer is we haven't done that. It is still an incredible grace and blessing uh, that we have from God. And they're supposed to recognize that. All right. And so it's a time of thanksgiving for God's provision, particularly 
at first fruits of the barley harvest. So one thing to recognize, another little point to add to our total understanding of this is, and it's something we've talked about before when we talk about the church calendar and the liturgy of the year and those kind of concepts, because we recognize this. Societies have liturgies. Societies have a calendar, and that calendar dictates the way they think about their yearly cycles and activities and things like that. And so I think a few years ago, we were talking about this topic and I challenged you and I said, what do you think those are for America? Like what are our American liturgies? What are the things that determine our calendar on a yearly basis? And so obviously some things would be obvious. The season's changing, okay? That's something that changes our view of the way uh, uh, things are and sort of we live in these cycles based on our seasons. But there's other things too, like the school calendar. School is a big thing particularly, but I think in all cases, particularly for public school, okay? Or normal, typical um, uh, cycles of school, right? You you sort of schedule your whole life around school time and break time, summer vacation, fall break, Christmas break, spring break, summer break again, and your whole life shift around that, right? People determine their vacations. They determine all these different pieces of their life based around a school system that's been placed on them. Um, sports calendars, all right? When it's football season in Tennessee, it's football season in Tennessee. The whole world shifts around that reality, all right? Sports are a big deal in our culture. Um, there's baseball season and there's basketball season. There's football season. There's not really soccer season yet because who cares, right? Um, no, I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. I just said that to be a jerk. Um, but, but there, but we know that there are those seasons, right? Um, that you wait for a time when this is the traditional time that we put all of our attention and focus onto one of these things. Um, obviously generally our holidays play into that. Okay. Well, what is the main element of the ancient liturgical account? What is the thing that they are planning their year around? And the answer is, it's almost always the agricultural year. It's almost always the cycle of planting and growing and harvesting and processing and then planting and growing and harvesting and processing. That's almost pretty much anywhere you go in the world. It is often based around those things. And in Israel, that was no different. So when you came to the springtime, Around the time of Passover in the year, which would be our, you know, April or so, what you notice is that the beginning of the barley harvest was starting to come in. Those green plants were finally starting to put forth bunches of seed. I mean, you know, the grains, right? Those things were finally coming to maturity just at the beginning of the spring. It wasn't even harvest time yet, but the first fruit of the year of the barley harvest was starting to ripen around the time of Passover. And so the festival um, is remembered at the same time. It's a remembrance of God's faithful provision in the land. And um, it's, a, it's a remembrance of the fact that they have a new life in the promised land that is separate from slavery in Egypt. So real quick, turn over to Deuteronomy chapter 26, because that's another key passage about this idea of first fruits. And there's a big section. I'm going to read a big section, but I want you to get a feel for the language and the things that he talks about and the ways that attention is brought to things in the context of first fruits. So Deuteronomy chapter 26, starting in verse one, it says, when you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance 
and have taken possession of it and live in it, you shall take some of the first fruit, first of all the fruit of the ground, which you harvest from your land that the Lord your God is giving you, and you shall put it in a basket, and you shall go to the place that the Lord your God will choose to make his name to dwell there. That's meaning the tabernacle or eventually the temple. And you shall go to the priest who is in office at that time and say to him, I declare today that the Lord your God, that I have come into, I declare today to the Lord your God, that I have come into the land that the Lord swore to our fathers to give us. Then the priest shall take the basket from your hand and set it down before the altar of the Lord your God. And you shall make a response before the Lord your God. Quote, a wandering Aramean was my father. And we went down into Egypt and sojourned there, few in number. And there he became a a nation, great, mighty, and populous. And the Egyptians treated us harshly and humiliated us and laid on us hard labor. Then we cried to the Lord, the God of our fathers, and the Lord heard our voice and saw our affliction and our toil and our oppression. And the Lord brought us up out of Egypt with a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, with great deeds of terror, with signs and wonders. He brought us into this place and gave us this land, a land flowing with milk and honey. And behold, now I bring the first fruit of the ground, which you, O Lord, have given me. And you shall set it down before the Lord your God and worship before the Lord your God. And you shall rejoice in all the good that the Lord your God has given to you and to your house, you and the Levite and the sojourner who is among you. All right. So there's the man that passage is rich with the, the, the imagery and the talking points, the things that they are, we are looking to God and thankful for. All right. It isn't just about the food and the crops and the provision, but it's about all of it as they come into the promised land. It's about the land as a possession. It's about the fact that we were homeless wanderers once and God has given us a place. It's about the fact that we were just a family and God has turned us into a nation. It's, it's about the fact that we were slaves and God has given us freedom. It's about the fact that we were orphans and God has become our father and given us a home and an inter- eternal inheritance. All right. All that is tied up in this celebration of the first fruits. And did you notice at the very end in verse 11, what does it say? It says, and you shall rejoice. All right. That's key because in the festival of the Passover and the festival of unleavened bread, Less rejoicing, okay? A kind of rejoicing, but but it is more of a somber kind of holiday, all right? Passover reminds us of that stark reality of the cost of our sins. And we're reminded of the story of the death of the firstborn, okay? Not exactly a celebratory thing, even though we recognize that we do celebrate in a way because we have been saved from those things. Same thing with the, the, the Festival of Unleavened Bread. What do we do? Man, it looks again to this somber reality that we have to be about removing sin from our lives. We recognize that we are sinners and we got to get sin out of our lives and live in a way that is in keeping with God's word. Both of those are reverential in a, in a, in a certain way. And all of them are reverential, but, but you understand what I mean. But first fruits is a celebration. First fruits is not only a time to thank God for what he has saved us from, but what he has saved us to and all the good and bounty and blessing that he has bestowed upon us. All right. And so, so we see those elements going on, but, but here's another piece that is important about first fruits. 
because it's, it's, it is celebratory, but there's a particular posture that is, I think, unique, at least in terms of these three festivals that we've taken so far. All right. In a very real sense, you could think about Passover as something that has happened and unleavened bread is something that we need to be doing right now. But there is a sense in which first fruits is an anticipatory festival. All right. It's looking ahead. And if you think about it, it's certainly looking ahead by its very nature as a festival, because what's going on, it's the first fruits that have come in. You're just at the beginning of this process, not at the end of God's blessing. So it's sort of the opposite of the way we celebrate Thanksgiving in our country. And Thanksgiving, American Thanksgiving, we celebrate Thanksgiving really at the end of the harvest season. Okay. So once everything has come in, now we are saying, God, thank you for this bounty. Thank you for bringing everything in, which is totally fine and good. That's, that's not a problem, but I'm saying that there's a little bit of a difference in first fruits because first fruits happens at the beginning, really before the beginning. It happens before the harvest has really even begun in earnest. And so there is certainly a level that first fruits is about hope. It's about promise. It's about believing and trusting that God is going to bring these things to us in the future. And so maybe what, what one way we can talk about it is there's lots of talk about thanksgiving in these passages. So maybe we could think of it in terms of being preemptively thankful. And we see this, honestly, all through the New Testament, particularly in Paul's writings. We see Paul talking in a way where he is going ahead and thanking God for things that God hasn't done yet. But he's thanking him in advance because he trusts that God will do it because God is a faithful God. And that's the kind of things that he will do. Okay, so we see that kind of idea in the festival of first fruits. And what's interesting, too, is another interesting connection that it makes in this same passage in Deuteronomy 26 is it ties what at first seems like a separate idea. But it ties this idea into the idea of first fruits. And that is the idea of the tithe. Tithing comes into this passage in a unique way. And immediately, I think, we can see the connections between tithing and the concept of first fruits. The tithe literally means a tenth, right? Um, it literally means that there were actually um, different tithes required in Scripture. Um, they're closed for coffee, but y'all are welcome to come on in if you want to. <laughs> uh, the tithe was literally a tenth, okay? But here's the cool thing. I don't know if you guys recognize this. Um, there are multiple tithes in the Scripture. There's not just one tithe. We sort of think, oh, yeah, you give a tenth of your income to the, the, the temple or whatever. There are actually multiple tithes that you gave. Tithes at different times and in different ways. Um, but the tithe was a kind of first fruit as well. It was a giving in a way that trusted forward for God. Okay. And you guys know this. We know this now. Okay. We talk about it a lot. Um, when we talk about tithing, the idea of tithing from the beginning of your income, not from the end of your income. Now, why is that? Okay, well, there's practical reasons for it, because I don't know about your family, but my family tends to, if we wait to the end to tithe, we've spent everything, okay? Because that just tends to be the way um, that, that, that things end up happening, right? There's always something to spend money on. 
But tithing as a first fruit changes the idea of it a little bit because we are saying, God, if I give you a portion up front, then I'm trusting that you are going to provide for all of the things that come after this, all right? And the same idea is there with the crops in in um, the Festival of First Fruits, okay? We are assuming, we are trusting, we are hoping that God will do exactly what we think he is going to do. And so all these things come together, but there is a cool other, there's so many like, this is what's neat about the Festival of First Fruits, because I think in a lot of ways, it's the one that is maybe less familiar of the three to us, all right? But there are so many cool connections that God makes to the festival, all right? Because think about this. Notice another thing. It's a hopeful festival. It is a forward-looking festival. We are acknowledging God's provision and his blessing. We're acknowledging this land that he has given us where we will be provided for and we will have a home and all of these things. And yet there's also something that God ties to this where we acknowledge that those things are incomplete, that there's something still missing from this situation. So notice this in verse in, in, in uh, Deuteronomy 26, it makes another key connection and that is care for the poor the widow, the orphan, and the sojourner. Something we've talked a lot about over the years. And again, at first, that might seem counterintuitive, but it becomes clear very quickly because we can sit and look around in our own lives and say, God, thank you for all your blessing. Thank you for taking care of me. Thank you for providing. Thank you for all the different ways that you have blessed. And yet, we can also look around in our community and realize this is not equally true forever that I may be blessed and God has taken care of me, but there are other people who seem to be hurting for whatever reason. And often as we've looked at these, because of oftentimes because of their situation in life, because they are a sojourner, um, someone who is a foreigner to, to the community and doesn't know its ways and doesn't have access to certain things. A person who is fatherless, an orphan, a widow, different, different categories of people. Okay. And so there's a recognition in the festival of first fruits as it ties it to this special tithe that was given once every three years where you were supposed to take a 10th of your income once every three years and specifically give it to the maintenance of the poor, the widow, the orphan, the sojourner. And in fact, the Levite, the Levites were the, 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 the workers in the temple. Okay, that was a unique tithe. It wasn't the the uh, you know sort of daily, weekly, monthly function of the temple tithe. It was a special tithe that happened only once every three years. But he ties it into this idea of first fruits in this passage. And so, verse twelve: When you have finished paying all the tithe of your produce in the third year, which which is the year of tithing, give it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, the widow, so that they may eat within your towns and be filled. Then you shall say before the Lord your God, I have removed the sacred portion out of my house. And moreover, I have given it to the Levite, the sojourner, the fatherless, and the widow, according to all your command that you have commanded me. Right? So in the land of plenty, in the land of provision, there are still those who go without. And, it, and the Bible recognizes that. It says we are supposed to be thankful for the provision of God and also recognize that maybe there are some people who uh, are less fortunate than we are. Now, it's interesting um, because we 
It's something we mentioned over here in, in our Schaefer study last week or the week before. Um, the Bible doesn't believe in an earthly utopia, right? It doesn't believe that we can achieve those things on our own. It believes in a new heaven and a new earth. It believes in a consummated uh, world where Christ is king and all of his people are at peace with, with God, right? But it doesn't believe in a world that we can fix here and of ourselves, okay? So think about this. What did Jesus say about the poor at one point? He said, the poor you will always have with you. Right? That's not a passage for us to go, ah, the poor are always going to be with us. So just, and there's nothing we can do about it. So just let them keep on being poor. They're always going to be with us. No, the point is to say that means we will always have opportunity to be merciful, to be gracious, to be generous to those who are less fortunate. And the festival of first fruits takes that into the big consideration of all these things. So we can give back to God because God freely gives to us. We can be generous, even sacrificial with what he has given us because God is faithful and he will take care of us. All right. And so all those ideas come into the, the way the festival of first fruits was practiced in, in Israel. All those ideas come together. Now, as we've seen, when you get to the New Testament, Jesus has been adding new meaning and adding another layer of meaning to all of these festivals. He certainly did that with Passover. We talked about how when he's standing there at the Lord's Supper, at the Last Supper, he is redefining the elements of the Supper to now apply to his life and sacrifice. We talked about how he's essentially doing that in the Feast of Unleavened Bread as he gives his own body as the unleavened, right, the purified bread, um, that represents the, the, the sacrifice in later Judaism. It goes into the ground. It has been taken from the house. It has been cleansed um, so that the new lump can be pure. Okay, and so Jesus redefines those, and he's going to redefine things in terms of first fruits because immediately when we get to the New Testament, the language of first fruits starts talking about something very specific, and that is the resurrection of Jesus from the grave. That Jesus is the first fruit of something to come. So turn your Bible real quick to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. It's funny, we went to 1 Corinthians last week, and here we are again in 1 Corinthians. 1 Corinthians got a lot of cool stuff in it. I don't know how familiar you are with it. Probably if, if, if in my head I was like, man, where are we going to learn the most about the festivals of the Old Testament in the New Testament? I would have assumed that it would have been book of Hebrews, maybe, or, or even the book of Romans. And, and th- both of those places have something to say for it. But there's a lot of good stuff in 1 Corinthians. And 1 Corinthians 15 is an entire chapter about the resurrection of Christ. So it begins discussing whether or not Christ was really raised and saying, well, of course he must be raised and, and these different things. But when we get down to verse 20, it says, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by one man or a man came death, by one man or a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall be all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ, the first fruits. Then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. All right. So when sin entered the world, it brought 
not only judgment, not only defilement, but it brought death. Well, we notice something. Jesus has become our substitute atonement, freeing us from judgment. He has become our sinless purity, freeing us from defilement. And now he has become our resurrection, freeing us from death. Jesus is called the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, or in other translations, the first fruits from among the dead. And so like a grain of barley that is dropped into the earth, symbolically dying, literally being buried, and yet what happens? It springs to new life, abundant life, new blessing, new provision. Jesus even uses that very language in John chapter 12. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. He's talking about his own death and resurrection. Jesus goes into the ground. Jesus is planted, but he is arisen to newness of life and new provision. And he is the first fruits of the resurrected from the dead. The first one to ever be resurrected. You say, well, Ash, uh, what about all those other people? What about Lazarus? What about the widow of Nain's son? Uh, what about Jairus' daughter? Weren't they resurrected? No, they were not. They were all resuscitated. But the difference is, is that 20, 30, 80 years later, all those people died again, right? But not Jesus. Jesus is resurrected. He is given a new life and a new kind of life, even. He is resurrected to eternal life forever. For always, never to die again. And the key to that, the key to that language again of first fruits is the same idea is that Jesus may be the first person to be resurrected from the dead, but he will not be the last person to be resurrected from the dead. Jesus is the first fruits, but there is a vast harvest that is coming in from that grain that has gone into the earth. Again, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 51. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. This mortal body must put on immortality. And when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus is the forward-looking promise that death will not have the last word in your life or in my life if we trust in Jesus Christ. Jesus is the forward-looking promise that there is a new life 
promised to us that is coming down the road. Not just a life like the one we live now, but a a new life. A life that is imperishable. A life that is immortal. A life that will never experience death again. And here's the cool thing. As you would expect, if Christ's resurrection is the first fruits and connected to the festival of first fruits, then it's not just a new life that we have, free from sin, free from slavery, all those things. It's not just a new life. Guess what? It's a new world. It's a new home. It's a promised land that we are headed for. Because here's the cool thing. Jesus um, is not just promising us a changed life. He's promising us a new place. He's not just promising us a new life. He's promising us a, a new universe. He's promising something that where everything is changed and everything is different. Romans 8, you can turn there if you want to, or you can just kind of listen along as I read, but a passage you may be familiar with, talking about creation. For creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth up until now. And not only creation, but we ourselves who have, here's a new first fruits. We ourselves who have the first fruits of the spirit groan inwardly, As we wait eagerly for the adoption of sons, the redemption of our bodies, for in this hope we are saved. The universe has suffered along with us. When we broke our own lives through sin, we broke the universe too. The universe is under God's judgment now. The universe is under defilement now. The universe is even under death. There's some fun things that we can talk about. If you're a nerd and you like uh, astrophysics and stuff like that, you learn about this concept called entropy and this concept called the second law of thermodynamics, which basically means this. The world is, I mean, the universe is just running out of energy. It's just running down. Like a big battery that just every bit of work it does, it runs down so that theoretically in a distant future, everything will just be dead and cold because there will be not enough energy. There won't be enough order. There won't be enough organization. Everything will be broken down into its lowest common denominator. That's the, the, uh, the death of the universe. You could say our universe is dying, if that's accurate, but we know it's true. Even if that's not exactly the way it works, because the Bible talks about the fact that our, our universe or the created order is under a death sentence and anthropomorphized in this passage Um, It is crying out also. It's saying, God, redeem us. God, save us. God, give us new life. Give the universe new life again. Cleanse us from defilement. Renew us to the perfection that we had in Eden when everything was good and right and pleasing to God. And so the promise that is seen in Another part of that first fruits thing, the thing that we just read, the first fruits of the spirit that we bear, which we talk about this too, what does the spirit do in our lives? It's a sign and a seal of a future reality that we're going to have. It's another image of the first fruits in our life that's referenced there. And so here's the deal. All of that to say is that 
the festival of first fruits is, is about thankfulness. It is about provision. It is about caring for the poor. Those are its um, uh, temporal realities. But its fulfillment is found in the, the, the fact that there is a new world coming. There is a new life on the way. There's a new kind of life on the way. And so let's, let's, as we close, let's kind of do this real quick. Like look back across these festivals and think for a second about what, how they all come together for us. Because what did we say at the very beginning? All of the festivals are about Sabbath. At some level, they are all about Sabbath. And what does Sabbath mean? Sabbath means rest. How do we get back in this broken world of sin? How do we get back to a place of peace and rest with God? And each one of these festivals so far has shown us an element of what is necessary to return to rest with God. Passover showed us that we, if we want to be at peace with God, we want to be at rest with God, shalom with God, Shabbat with God, Shabbat Shalom with God. If we want to be in that state, what it will require is redemption and atonement. Our sin has to be paid for and we have to be bought back from slavery. It has to be. You can't have peace with God any other way. You might sit there and say, why can't just God get over it? Why can't God just let me live as I want to live? It can't happen. If you want peace with God, you have to be bought back from your sin. A price has to be paid. The sacrificial death of the lamb fulfilled in Jesus Christ on Passover day or Good Friday. That's the first piece. But that's not the end. That's not the only thing that brings us peace with God. We need more than that. Because rest or peace with God requires being cleansed. We cannot continue to live in relationship with God and have peace with him if we continue in our uncleanliness. If we continue with our sin-filled lives, if we continue to be leavened with the world and with Egypt and with the Pharisees and with sin, there's no way that we can be at peace with God. The only way we can be right and rest with God is if we are sanctified. If the leaven is removed from our lives, that's what the best piece of unleavened bread is about. Okay? But then there's another piece, and we see that in first fruits, and is the idea of this. You know what? This place and this life that we live now, it's not enough. It can't hold the glory that is waiting for us. Okay? God just can't come down here and sort of go, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to save you and I'm going to clean you up a little bit and I'm just going to let you keep on going on this track, you know, ad infinitum. It can't hold it. There needs to be a new life. There needs to be a resurrected life. There needs to be a new land. There needs to be a promised land. And all that is fulfilled in Jesus Christ and in his resurrection. He is the beginning of those things. And so what we see is there's sort of like this nice little compact, completed gospel picture in the spring festivals. The spring cycle is, is, is done now. Um, and again, it's, it's appropriate that we would end that passage in Romans where it talks about the first fruits of the spirit coming because next week we are going to talk about the lone summer festival. 
There's only one festival of the seven that is by itself, and it's sitting there, and it is the festival that is the Jews call the festival of weeks. And the reason is, is because seven weeks of weeks pass from Passover to the celebration of that festival. So seven sevens, or 49 days, and then on the 50th day, you celebrate that festival. 50, as in Penta, or five, right? And so it's the festival that we call in the Christian church Pentecost. And so that is the one summer festival. And then we have another gap and we get to the fall. And then in the fall, we have another set of three. Um, and that's the, the festival of trumpets and Yom Kippur, the day of atonement. And then the festival of booths or the festival of tabernacles or the in gathering. And so we're going to hit those, but you can kind of see, I think it's cool how completely we have seen Jesus Christ fulfill the first three festivals and how in the message of those first three festivals, we have this beautiful gospel picture of what Christ has come to do, what he has accomplished, and the promises that he has made to his people. So let's go right now just uh, as we close um, to the Lord in a time of prayer. Um, I'll have Marlon come back up and lead us in in closing worship. And let's just... Take some time to thank God. Um, take some time to praise God for the beauty of, of uh, how he has laid out the truths of his word, how he has laid out this beautiful picture of, of the, the true Sabbath, uh, and how he reminds us of these things in the biblical festivals and, most importantly, in how Jesus Christ has fulfilled those things. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father God, what beautiful symbolism and, and symmetry um, we see as we turn to your word. We see the pictures that you have painted um, through um, the, the life and, and liturgy and celebration of your people throughout um, the history of your people. God, we see this beautiful picture of the gospel painted for us, a gospel of, of redemption and sanctification and of new life. And God, we are, we have those things. We are promised those things. We have access to those things in a fulfilled way because of your son, Jesus Christ. And so God, we give you thanks that thousands and thousands of years ago, you typed these things. You foretold these, you foreshadowed um, these realities. And yet uh, now in our own time, the, the grace and blessing and incredible um, beauty of the fact that we live in a time of fulfillment. God, it would have been um, joyous to live, um, God, in the time of the Old Testament and, and to um, be the recipients of your word in those festivals. And yet, God, what greater glory um, that um, we have been permitted to, to live in a time when we see the fulfillment of these things, that they are going on around us. 
um, yet. And Lord, we look forward to the uh, future fulfillment of these other festivals that we are going to talk about and the ways that you will work those things out in, in the salvation and history of your people. And so God, just thank you for your word. Um, thank you that we can look to it in that, um, I am encouraged by it to, to, to see the beautiful design that you have laid out and to know that there is a wise and good and loving and, and knowing God who has planned these things and who has designed them, uh, and who has laid them out for his people. God, we thank you for all your many blessings. We thank you for the goodness of your provision in our daily lives. We thank you for the provision of salvation through your son, Jesus Christ. We thank you that we uh, look with anticipation um, to a resurrected life, to a life free forever from death and an eternal home in the promised land of the new heaven and the new earth. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Appreciation Sunday. So uh, Julie did a lot of groundwork and she talked with, I think, everybody and we took up a collection for Ash to show and his family to show that how much we love and appreciate them and uh, the uh, the first fruits that they are selling packing us. So we know they have a car that's broken and the AC is busted. So we collected $1,300 for you guys to fix that. So we love you. And uh, we hope maybe there's room for a comic book or two in there. <laughs> but we just, we love you and we love all you guys. And uh, it just wouldn't be the same without you. Thank you, dude. Appreciate it. <laughs> well, I can tell you my wife will be incredibly happy. Um, uh, so, man, that is incredible. Um, thank you, guys. That is really cool. Um, I don't know what to say. Um, that's a whole lot. So thank you. Um, uh, I love doing this. Um, it's not always easy, um, but I'm thankful for it. I'm thankful for all you guys. So, um, thank you very much. Um, we love you. Thank you for loving us. Um, yeah, here's benediction before I get weepy. Um, May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you. Give you peace. We'll see you next week.